Welcome to the eighth episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks, and we are joined today by Asa Eager. Hi, I'm Asa Eager. Andrea De Giorgi. Hello, uh, I'm Andrea De Giorgi. And Rehan Durmaz. Hello, I'm Rehan Durmaz. Asa Eager is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He has a doctorate from the University of Chicago in Islamic archaeology. He is the author of four books and 30 articles and essays on Islamic and Byzantine archaeology and history, focusing primarily on the 6th to 12th centuries. Dr. Eager has excavated and surveyed in Turkey, Israel, Cyprus, and Greece for the past 25 years and conducted archaeological analysis on legacy and spatial data in Syria and Iraq. He works on issues of frontiers and borders, environmental history, the relationship of cities and their hinterlands, Islamic ceramics, tribes and the state, and gender and sexuality. He was also a fellow in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks in the spring of 2012. Andrea De Giorgi is Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Florida State University. He specializes in Roman urbanism and visual culture from the origins to late antiquity with emphasis on the Greek East. He is the author of Ancient Antioch from the Seleucid Era to the Islamic Conquest Cambridge University Press, 2016, editor of COSA and the Colonial Landscape of Republican Italy, 2019, and co-editor of COSA or Betello Archaeological Itineraries, 2016. Dr. De Giorgi has directed excavations and surveys in Turkey, Syria, Georgia, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates. Since 2013, he has co-directed the COSA excavations in Italy and currently studies the 1930s Antioch collections at the Princeton University Art Museum. He has received numerous fellowships, both from American and German institutions. And last, Rehan Durmaz is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research interests include Syriac Christianity, religion and society in late antiquity, hagiography, and Christian-Muslim relations in the Middle Ages. Her first monograph, tentatively titled Beyond Hagiography, Stories Between Christianity and Islam in the Middle Ages, under contract at the University of California Press, examines the transmission of non-biblical saints' stories and cults from Christianity to Islam. A rather research project includes study of rural Christianities in the Middle Ages in the Eastern Mediterranean. She received her PhD from Brown University in 2019 with a Joukowsky Outstanding Dissertation Award in Humanities. She was a junior fellow in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oak in 2018-19. Her research has also been supported by the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. They will be discussing a new volume just published by Routledge entitled Antioch, a History, co-authored by Asa Eager and Andrea De Giorgi, 
covering the history of the city from the fourth century BCE to the present. They'll answer questions like, what is special about Antioch? Which methodological approaches have the authors used to write the biography of the city? And last but not least, how can we rethink of the renowned Antioch mosaics? We are very happy to be discussing Antioch, a history by Andrea De Giorgi and Asa Eger. The book was just published by Routledge in 2021, and it covers the city of Antioch from the 4th century BCE all the way to the 21st century. I would like to ask our speakers, the authors of the book, to start with, uh, Andrea and Asa, how did the two of you work and how did you create the methodological structure of your book? Well, I'll get it started. Thank you for the kind introduction. Well, as and I go a long way. Actually, we hit it off back in 2002 when we were fortunate enough to be part of this remarkable survey of the territory of Antioch, a survey that was directed by University of Chicago. And, uh, and we had this incredible fortune to sort of like, you know, to put our hands on the territory of Antioch. And I think we got the bug. Things were never the same after that. We got to experience sort of the magic of the city and also sort of the, the importance of this place that changed the, the ancient world in fundamental ways. So basically, we'll, we've had this chemistry for many years, and uh, and even after sort of like you know field work together, we've been collaborating on articles, on various initiatives that are seeking to sort of restore this idea of Antioch's centrality. Antioch being sort of like this entity that is important, in spite of being extremely elusive. In that vein, we've promoted a number of initiatives, sort of like at Princeton University. Uh, sort of seeking to sort of go back to the uh, old archaeological collections from Antioch. We've published a great deal. So basically, this is a, uh, a long-term relationship that, that keeps us sort of on, on working real well and churning out new scholarship. And, and I think this, this, this last book is very much a sort of like you know, a testament of our commitment to, uh, to Antioch. Right, Asa? Absolutely. I would say also that methodologically, the book very much reflects our experiences with the city and, and also our relationship in doing work. That very first year, we, we lived in this beautiful old Ottoman house, very much in the heart of the city, the heart of the modern city. But we surveyed the countryside. So our first experiences really archaeologically were of the country, not of the city, but we lived in the city. So every day we kind of went out in the fields literally to work. And I think over the years, we've worked so on so many projects around Antioch and we've closed in more and more and more. And so it was really a kind of an honor and a pleasure to be able to just write this history of the city. And the methodology is informed by that because we always tap into the landscape. What's going on around the city? What's going on um, with the connections to the outside? And we also, we are archaeologists, but we wanted to make this book as accessible as possible to everyone. So we include the politics, we include all the religious communities. Um, that was very important to us. And we foreground very much the physicality of the city itself, but 
always are trying to weave in all the other aspects of the city. Thank you very much. Nonetheless, the contents of the book uh, reveal a chronological sort of structure. Now, Rehan, would you like to ask your question about this part of the book? Of course. First of all, thank you very much for having me here today. It's such a pleasure and honor to be discussing this wonderful book with the two of you. So my first question when I uh, was reading this book was whether we can speak more about the chronologies and temporalities and periodization in general, because I realized that one of the major interventions of this book is basically connecting the pre-Islamic and post-Islamic history of a city, which is rarely done and rarely well done. Uh, Uh, in scholarship. So I was wondering, first of all, what do you think about that divide? And furthermore, when we look at the different chapters, I see a periodization based on political rule, right? The Seljuk period, um, then the Crusader period, the Byzantine period, Mamluk, etc. So I was wondering how else we can think about the life of a city alternative to this political periodization. And thank you very much for your thoughts about this, because this is something I've been thinking about in my own research. Thank you so much for the question. And it's great to have you here too, Rehan. Thank you for joining. This is an excellent question, especially to archaeologists who resist specific periodizations and political periodizations. We dwell in the world more of fourth century or seventh century rather than specific dates and numbers. Nevertheless, we did make this commitment. And so for several reasons, One, we very much wanted to present an entire history of the city because really the the predecessor of the history of Antioch is Glenville Downey's history of Antioch from uh, the early 60s. And he, like many others, draw a fine line when the history is done. And it's a very arbitrary line. History is done with an earthquake, with the conquest. So that later story has never been told. But within that story, one of the most fascinating aspects is what does a classical city look like as an Islamic city or as a medieval city? Many of the classical cities in the Near East are abandoned eventually by the medieval period. But this one is not. It's continuously inhabited. So we have that ability. And nevertheless, we could have made choices to say the early Islamic period or the middle Byzantine period, kind of in the in these, I mean, I realize we still did that, but in a way that kind of groups together things like Seljuks and Mamluks and Crusaders and doesn't have separate narratives for them. But I think we found it very useful to kind of go with the traditional, who are the occupants or the occupiers of Antioch, because it I'm sure Andrea can add a lot more here. It also tells a different story because the city was always desired. People always wanted to own it and claim it. And that sequence of events and that occupancy was not always loved by its people, as we found out. So the kind of tension between occupying it politically and resistance by its people, and also, as we found out, many of the decisions made in the city actually were autonomous and kind of the city almost ran itself despite its occupants. But we found it sort of a a useful way to do that. We did divide up the Roman Byzantine periods 
though in a slightly different way than is usually done. And Andre, I don't know if you want to talk about kind of where you decided to draw this line between what is late Roman and Byzantine, because I think that was um, sort of something unique to Antioch itself, basically. Well, we certainly had to come to terms with a, uh, some kind of periodization that would make sense to the wider audience, because, of course, we also have to remember that we're pitching the book not only to sort of like a, a scholarly, well-learned audience out there, but also sort of like, you know, to the enthusiast, to sort of the archaeology enthusiast, to sort of the uh, the person who would like to know more about the early days of the Christian church in India. So there is a, a, a very diverse clientele out there to which the book uh, uh, is being pitched. So we also had kind of grudgingly to sort of like come to terms with these kinds of periodization. And for instance, with the late Roman period, or call, let's call it late antiquity for for lack of a, of a better term, we started one of the chapters with the Septimius Severus, which made a lot of sense from a, a strictly Antiochian perspective, because basically that's the moment when Antioch starts uh, very much sort of rising to to plateaus that had not been hitherto sort of like you know hit by any city in the environs. So that's sort of like you know, the rise of Antioch starts very much at that time. We argue, so we had to sort of like, again sort of embrace this idea of sort of, especially when it comes down to the fourth century, so have a section that will deal with like the, the late antique phase, considering, of course, the heap of information that we have about Antioch, is, I'm talking essentially about the uh, the textual sources, is sort of we have so much and, you know, think about John Chrysostom and the Theodoret of Sirius, and the list goes on and on and on. So, Yes, on the one hand, that was this system of basically creating sort of, you know, some kind of boundaries, as it were. But by the same token, sort of, we tried to sort of like, you know, very much place the emphasis on people rather than the emperors and the governors. So sort of like how people very much sort of uh, partook in this Antioch thing, how they basically sort of created their own agency, how they, they voiced their anxieties, how they basically negotiated sort of like, you know, their with the powers that were. And that sort of like, you know, basically helped us also sort of uh, model all these environmental complexities like, you know, famines, uh, food crises, uh, earthquakes, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Since Antioch is a city that uh, that indeed suffered gazillion catastrophes, so I think that this kind of like you know dual approach on the one hand, yes, some sense of you know tradition, sort of a storyline that follows a sort of a, a typical chronology, but then on the other hand, sort of like you know basically emphasizing people, their voices, their experiences. That is sort of like you know what gave us a little bit of more latitude, say when compared to Downey or any of the previous histories. Of Antioch. If I can just follow up, um, this was very useful. And you are right that within that overarching linear historical narrative, the book does a wonderful job of showing different temporalities, right? As you were just saying, the temporality of long-standing institutions, temporality of family and multi-generational temporalities of families beyond individual members, and the very time frame of natural disasters or other um, natural phenomena that um, took that shaped the history of the city. So it's wonderful to switch between or 
or zoom in and out between these different time frames throughout this book. So that was a feast. But that brings, of course, many other questions because one of the recurring themes of this book is Antioch's agency, right? Antioch's character and Antioch's vision. So we are talking about Antioch giving a lot of agency to the city. But when we think about these different temporalities, a question that raised in my mind was, whose Antioch are we speaking about? Because Antiochenes is, of course, as uh, the book mentions multiple times, is not a homogenous group. So I was wondering if you could think out loud about whose Antioch we might think about. You, of course, mentioned Syrian Orthodox, Melkites, Armenians, and other religious groups, Jews, Muslims. So, and each one of them, um, while giving synchronized historical views of the city that you very wonderfully wove together, they also reorient the city towards their own vision. So I was just wondering if you could think out loud about this question of whose Antioch Antioch we are speaking about in this book and in various parts of this book. Yeah. Thank you, Rehan, so much for the question. And this is one of the, the questions that gets right to the heart and it's very incisive. And one of the fascinating things about Antioch, and this is almost a trope with so many cities, you know, cosmopolitan, many groups, kind of blah, blah, blah. But this is repeated so much for Antioch, but even in the primary sources themselves. That is, it seems that not just we as kind of a 20th, 21st century scholars are doing it, but the actual visitors and people that live in Antioch themselves are always trying to point out all the various groups. So it's really known as this city of, of many cultures and different religious groups as well. So in the book, we were faced with this decision, kind of what is Antiochian agency? And so whenever possible, we did talk about groups and groups against groups and groups with groups. And this especially comes true when we talk about the various Christian groups in Antioch, the Miaphysites, the Chalcedonians, especially because there's a lot of rivalry in certain periods, less so for example, with kind of Muslims and Jews and Christians, but that does appear. But I think what we found really fascinating is from the primary sources themselves, many times when the people of Antioch are being referred to, the citizens of Antioch, there is just as often no distinction. That is, they are called the Antiochians in various, you know, in their own various languages. And often that is set against the ruler. So the ruler and then the, you know, taxed the Antiochians or made them all provide food during a food crisis or the Antiochians kicked out this ruler. And so often these sort of reactions or, or kind of episodes happen as a city. So we try to keep that a little bit but of course, I think in reality, we know about factionalism. And, but what I think is also interesting, and I don't know if we can really get to the heart of this so much, but maybe future research. But when there are disasters, I wonder just in kind of modern examples of what happens when an earthquake hits a city or whatever, maybe at that point, citizens do come together. Maybe people of cities do come together, regardless of you worship at the Syriac church. And so I'm not going to pull you out of the rubble. And I mean, I'm not trying to reduce it in this way, but often the city that is beset by conquest or natural disasters probably did come together maybe more times than not. Yeah. 
look under the umbrella of Antiochian, you can you can fit uh, so many characterizations, and that is the uh, remarkable aspect of the story. Empress Eudokia, upon visiting Antioch, calls the Antiochians, you are great people, you're sons of Athens, you basically continue this tradition, which is, of course, sort of like a uh, pleasantry and sort of like a nicety that, that's been said. It, however, sort of like, you know, bespeaks this tradition of a city that really doesn't have just like, you know, one focal point and actually sort of like, you know, comes from this cauldron of cultures and ethnicities and, uh, and groups are basically sort of literally built a sort of like, you know, this thing. Now, of course, you sort of like, you know, the, uh, the sub question that you pose, Rehan, is, is a sensible one. I mean, how does the, uh, the built environment of Antioch sort of like inform this idea of sort of like multiple focal points? And that is one of the major issues that, that we had to sort of like grapple with. And that Antioch, in, in terms of its, its physicality, offers very little, if anything, to sort of like, you know, to the beholder. We've tried to sort of like to address a, a sense of physicality, a sense of materiality that is missing. Keep in mind that, for instance, sort of like, I don't need to tell you, like the churches of, of Antioch that we would read about, that we know so much about, are completely missing. We only have a handful of sites that we can sort of identify as churches, but it is very frustrating. All we have is a, a massive perimeter of walls and, and not much else. So it's, it's this, this vacuum that we try to sort of like, you know, fill with, with stories, information, and, and again, this remarkable patchwork of communities that each, where each sort of like, you know, negotiates their own Antioch. And however, sort of like, in keeping with this idea of sort of a sense of unity that occasionally comes to the, uh, to the surface, especially when it comes down to, to voice their, their disdain or their resentment or sort of like, you know, their, their hatred for emperors, for rulers, for governors. And they do that time and again. They do that with a, a certain regularity, starting with like the days of Lucius Verus and beyond. So if they don't like you, they don't like you. And the example of Julian the Emperor, the Misopagon and all that, is a, a sort of gripping moment in the history of this city, a, a community that says no to this guy who had promised to create a, a, church, a pagan church in Antioch, who had promised to sort of go out of his way for Antioch. And he would have like, you know, basically made Antioch sort of the most important of all the cities. And they say no to him. We don't like you. Get out of here. I would just add even a little bit. Um, I really actually do love this question. I, I feel like we can have a whole podcast just on this question alone. And I actually think future studies can tackle this subject of identity, but also I was having dinner last night and we were talking about this with a colleague whose family is from Antioch and she's Turkish and she grew up in Istanbul, but also that this permeates today, kind of how does Antioch almost market itself? Oh, as a city of so, so many communities and different religions and, and tolerance, which is wonderful, but also, how do other places see Antioch? And I remember working in other provinces in Turkey. Well, in Antioch today, they, they can wear shorts. And it's a, it's a liberal city. And it almost has its own kind of a 
will, like sort of an independence despite not willing to be kind of yoked under everything, not willing to kind of conform, but willing to sort of act in its own way even today. And I think in antiquity, there were several episodes that we can go to where Antioch was probably also seen externally somewhat similarly. God, Antioch, it's just, you know, it's nothing but sort of pagans with their festivals and always marching through the streets. And the rest of the Byzantine Empire has really embraced Christianity and they still have a, a temple to Apollo. And I mean, it's just kind of, I think, who's Antioch, but also perspectives from the outside versus the inside. Thank you. Thank you all very much. So I had a question, which is um, a simple question. How conscious were the inhabitants of the city, of the past of the city, all chronological stages? And we can start from today, because you mentioned Antioch today. So how conscious are they and how do they handle the past? What does the past represent for them through the sources and from your own experience? This is also uh, an amazing aspect of Antioch that I had not known before I started this project, although I had inklings of, as you said, if we start from today, if you go to the mosque of Habib Najjar, there's a tomb underneath. Actually, there's, there's two floors, and Habib Najjar is ostensibly buried there, as well as uh, Shimon Safa, that is thought to be perhaps, there is not a kind of a consensus on who this might be, but Simon and perhaps Simon Peter. So already we have this idea that we have perhaps a Christian apostle and a Muslim, let's say saint or buried side by side. And this is very much in keeping with the Quran in general, but this is already a nod to the past, more than a nod to the past. It's literally entombed and kind of set in place as the centerpiece for the entire city. And so at various points, we found a kind of on all levels, on, on these macro levels, where sources would recognize that Antioch is a place for the holy. It's the place where Christianity first took root, where the first church first took root, where Habib Najjar, which is from the Quran, if people will believe that the city referred to in the Quran, where in some ways the first citizen who who claimed monotheism and kind of and shrugged off paganism and of course was killed because of it also is there. And so there's many anecdotes. There's one anecdote I love, and that is one of the biographers in, I believe it's Salahuddin, Saladin's biographer who's with him. And there is, they're at war with Antioch. They're camped outside. They're negotiating war and truce. And he, in the midst of all this, he says, you know, I'm just going to dip into the city that we're at war with because I really want to visit this tomb. You know, this tomb is really important. This has a lot of history. And these aspects reverberate, I think, time and again. Many Islamic sources will always begin or reference the fact that, and they'll try to tell the foundation of Antioch, the story that it was founded by a king Antiochus. Of course, they get a little bit, you know, fuzzy on the details over the centuries, but that this is almost a badge of honor for the city. And then another aspect we will say is, or we can talk about this idea of talismans, 
which are almost, well, we, maybe we have the kind of macro, the big, the mosque of Habib Mujar and his uh, implications, but then these tiny, tiny talismans that are dotted throughout the city or something like the Haronion, which is one of the oldest parts of Antioch kind of relief carved in the side of the mountain, in much later sources, later Islamic sources, is a place where people might go to say prayers for um, the health of their children, children who have colds, because it's thought that this might be a weeping woman. And so these ideas of kind of more than superstitions, they're almost little touchstones with the past. Andre, I don't know if you want to add to, to this. No, no. If, as a matter of fact, I was going to add about the, the Caronian and sort of like the fact that so there's, there's this big monumental talisman that overlooks the city and that is well recognized by, by the Antakya in the sense that they uphold this past, this distant past, the sort of the, uh, the early you know, heyday of the Seleucid monarchy. And the foundation of the city that clearly lingers on. So there's that. There's certainly in Antakya today, there's a sense of pride that they sort of folks who live there sort of like, you know, they know they're part of this remarkable history. And no matter how small sort of the ecological evidence may be, but they, uh, they understand that there's sort of like, you know, there's a long story, an important one. And, and I think that the investment of the, uh, of the local government in terms of sort of creating a, a very important new archaeological museum that is very much to sort of like a testament to sort of like, you know, to the legacy of the ancient city, to sort of like this extraordinary story that very much sort of fills sort of like the, the local population sort of with pride and a sense of sort of belonging. So we're part of the story. And sort of like, and there's a lot of pride and rightly so. So if I can just follow up on that, Andrea, really quickly, you multiple times mentioned the local pride and how that is not mutually exclusive to other identities, right? One can belong to a particular religious group while still taking pride in their homeland, in which case, in this case, we're talking about Antioch and that local pride of this place. And of course, this automatically brings the question of the urban-rural divide. And one of the interventions of this book is actually interweaving the, la- the hinterland and the countryside into the history of Antioch. So I was wondering if we can dwell on that divide a little bit and how it loses meaning after a while to set rigid boundaries to a city and separate it from its hinterland. I was curious if you could tell a little bit more about your processes of doing that work methodologically and how you approach the countryside in general and how we can apply these methods in other research, right? Like a lot of us are wor- working on local this and local that, but how local is local is always a question. Uh, We can go from one building to an entire region. So um, yeah, I was just wondering if we can dwell on that locality, especially in light of the urban-rural dichotomy a little bit. Okay, well, this is uh, another um, key point in in our narrative. Of course, we treated, as, as I mentioned, we treated the, uh, the hinterlands of Antioch very much as an extension of the city. And we have numerous sort of textual representations of the, the folks from Antioch basically commuting daily from the city into the fields and back. I mean, of course, Libanius does a, a great job a great job in many of his orations in terms of, of illustrating sort of this phenomenon of sort of this flurry of movement that to and from the city happening on a daily basis. 
there's also sort of this dilemma because many of the of the villages in the rural districts were semi-autonomous, sort of kind of like divorced from the city with their own sort of local government. And, uh, and even sort of the textual sources very much sort of augmented this sense of sort of, of malaise in, in the sense that, for instance, a sort of John Chrysostom in one of his homilies, he very much addresses a sort of like, you know, the folks from the... Uh, from the rural districts who come to the city on Sundays, and they speak this language that we don't understand, of course, being in Syria, but yet they're brothers in Christ. Of course, there's a there's a religious perspective, but but there's also a, a sense of a, a divorce between the city and sort of the the rural districts in the distance. But of course, Antioch is also a, a huge city that has a huge territory that basically sort of straddles a sort of the plain and will actually be as the Mediterranean coast all the way into the limestone massif of Syria. So we're talking about a vast territory inhabited by countless communities, many very much sort of, again, sort of being the, uh, the byproduct of, of, yes, Antioch's expansion and very much sort of like being part, being integrated in this economic system that supports and sustains City. But there's also, especially like in the uh, outlying districts, a great deal of communities that clearly were not that integrated. And as a matter of fact, they were not affected by many of the catastrophes that, that hit the city, with, whether it was invasions or of the Persians or sort of some of those of those earthquakes that we mentioned. So kind of like leaving the scene unscathed is sort of like when things went bad for Antioch. So it's a, a very interesting process, and we try to sort of to address a sort of this duality. On the one hand, again, great deal of integration, but then on the other hand, sort of a, uh, a series of districts and, uh, and territories that were only sort of were liminal and, uh, in, and in that way sort of like not fully integrated in this greater Antioch system. I would add a little bit about our methodology as well. Because we're first and foremost trained as landscape archaeologists and began this whole process almost 20 years ago, doing a survey of its countryside. And so very much we build on a lot of the scholarship that has discussed agrarian practices and economic practices and that kind of thing. And we kind of bring in the text, but also the archaeology seems to support and also hold on its own that there is a strong link between town and country earlier. And perhaps Antioch during its, its heyday, Roman period, is a bit of a parasite city where all the goods kind of come in and, and people utilize the markets. But it does very much change. And that's, I think, reflected archaeologically where rural sites actually get bigger and become towns and Antioch becomes smaller. It still uses these sort of legendary Byzantine walls, but the city within them shrinks and shrinks. And we have references to this where people, instead of going out in the fields, uh, you know, to the, the plains to garden and, and sow and cultivate, harvest, they actually do it within the walls. So parts of the city actually just become ruralized, which I think is fascinating because I think from some perspectives, people might think, oh, it's, it's a city in decline. They're, you know, they're growing in their own city, kind of, they're not even utilizing all the space. I think it can speak to far greater ideas of sort of resilience, especially after all these disasters and catastrophes to be able to be 
much more self-sufficient and not tied to huge markets and economies. At the same time, we hear about traveling markets in the country that don't even really need to stop in Antioch anymore, which I find fascinating. And I think a lot of that continues to this day. So town and country kind of goes back and forth. And I think as the centuries go on, one hears less and less about the country. And actually the reverse, which I find fascinating, when disaster hits Antioch of an epic scale, like an earthquake, it creates a period of time where the citizens of the city become citizens of the country. And often they do it because they think the city is just too dangerous. So we'll hear, we'll read about that people just went out and lived in the fields and in the country because they didn't want to live surrounded by four walls because that seemed the scariest thing to do at the time. So we almost have an incident of people leaving the city to take on a kind of country life that was probably temporary though. If I can just uh, add one more note to that, I think in addition to these broader changes in pattern across a linear timeline, what the book highlights, or one of the things the book uh, really wonderfully highlights is um, seasonality and cyclicality of life. So in certain times of the year, Antioch was just simply a more crowded place compared to other times of the year. And of course, this changing with uh, economic developments or religious festivals or other seasons personalities. So I think in any in any year, we can't talk about one static Antioch, but we have to think about this as a moving, growing and shrinking entity across time, which is really, I think, important. In light of this book, I can tell it is a, a very important thing to keep in mind those different seasonalities of this city. So it was really helpful for me to think about my material in that sense as well. If I may add, just like uh, my way in, I'm, I'm glad you bring this aspect up because, you know, when we sort of also look at the visual culture of Antioch and sort of like, you know, we think about sort of the extraordinary repertoire of mosaics and many of these mosaics very much celebrate sort of like, you know, the seasons. So that great moment in the history of Antioch, the foundation, the moment when sort of the crops are are in bloom and where where the city there's all this abundance there the land is sort of like is fertile i think that there's also a great visual connection with what you just said that, that is very much sort of like you know part of this great story that we're we're, we're discussing here today yes if i may follow up on mosaics what is your 21st century approach on the spectacular Antiochian mosaics? I mean, if you would like to address this, since, you know, this is a Dumbarton Oaks podcast. And as we know, Dumbarton Oaks did participate, did fund some uh, the archaeological digs in Antioch. So I, I would like to hear your take on that. We have to pay our dues to to the Martin Oaks and this extraordinary collection. Well, of course, I mean the ancient mosaics are hands down one of the most beautiful, extraordinary collections of mosaics ever ever sort of garnered by an archaeological expedition. I mean, we're talking about three hundred and plus sort of mosaics that, that were that were lifted. However, now completely balkanized because by the same token, this is a collection that is like basically scattered all over the world from Cuba to sort of like, you know, to Kansas, to, uh, to California, you name it. All the, uh, uh, the most important museums, especially in North America, sort of like have their halls lined up with this beautiful, beautiful pavements. Well, of course, as an eye, I had to, uh, 
come to grips with sort of the fact that for many decades, so Antic has been identified as the sea of mosaics. I mean, basically just sort of the place, the locus where all these mosaics are sort of embellished the sort of the houses of the wealth. And um, we very much sort of sought to debunk this posture because we're not clearly comfortable with it. We recognize the importance of these mosaics because they're extraordinary, they're beautiful and all, but they very much sort of like tell stories that are important, are central. They very much inform the, the outlook of the patterns. They very much sort of help us discuss, as we're doing today with Rayhan, sort of the idea of like, you know, the memory. She suggested sort of like, how can we talk about sort of the memory of the early days of the foundation? Yes, those mosaics in, in many instances very much celebrate the sort of the glory days of, of Antioch's foundation and the founders and the sort of like the celebration of Greek myths, uh, sort of a, uh, a sense of being Hellenist, Greek, however, in Syria, uh, sort of, you know, basically sort of like, you know, this, this project of theirs. So we, we try not to sort of to dwell on, on the beauty and sort of the, the, the aesthetical value that, of course, we're not going to take away, but rather sort of like we try to integrate sort of these visual stores, these tapestries, and so sort of these tessellated services into sort of like, you know, the voices of the Antiochians and sort of like, you know, their, why they needed to sort of like, you know, to, to surround themselves or sort of with this extravagance sometimes images or opulent sort of representations of nature, Greek gods, and sort of like all the great things in life. I will add a little bit as well, and I very much appreciate those perspectives, Andrea. The mosaics I find are often, especially with Dumbarton Oaks, as this was the case for me, really my outside of Antioch's museum itself, my first sort of touch with Antioch was through its mosaics in Dumbarton Oaks, especially the one that you kind of walk over. And I think all the work that has been done on them is pretty incredible. And yet there's more to do. And I think we also felt that the mosaics have kind of been a little bit of a bully in Antioch. They're so pretty that they, they tend to just, they want the spotlight all the time. They kind of, oh, you're talking about Antioch? Well, look at us, you know, we are sort of, it's like the beauty pageant of Antioch. But at the same time, they represent one or two periods of the history, of the long history. And they usually are coming from contexts of elite villas, elite residences, you know, less so some baths, one church. And so they're not really representative of the picture of Antioch that we try to do. And we talked about earlier of differing communities, differing social classes, and so on. And so I think we, we treat them well, and many people have treated them, but we also minimize them a bit because mosaics take all the attention. I will add a little plug that many of the mosaics come from the suburb of Daphne, and one of our future projects that we are already embarking upon is to look at the archaeology above and below the mosaics, not just the mosaics themselves, but their archaeological contexts, and just try to situate them beyond just their iconography. Thank you very much. As we are moving towards the conclusion of our podcast, I would like to ask Rehan about the, the use of this volume for your field, religious studies, and more broadly. I mean, if you would like to tell us more about how this book can make a difference, can be used in the classroom, beyond the classroom, 
Just your uh, opinion on the book. Um, I'll just briefly tell it will be difficult to summarize this book and its uses for me in a short podcast that deserves its own podcast, but I will be brief. So first of all, as you mentioned, Anna, I'm a scholar of religious studies and a, a volume like this always brings that world into its own physical context. So all of these communities that I study, the Syrian Orthodox community, as well as uh, Melkites and other other Christian and Muslim communities that I do focus on in my research all in a way fell into their physical spaces in this volume. So it was really wonderful to just fill in that gap with material culture and with their um, interactions in this very special place and geographical location and this in this landscape. So that is number one, how a book like this, which ties texts and material culture together can actually give the very essential background to, to religious studies. And it's a, I think it's a two-way um, dialogue, right? At the same time, I think religious studies can contribute greatly to works like this by highlighting how religious identities and formation of religious groups work in material contexts like it is laid out in this book. Secondly, my recent project is on Syrian Orthodox communities in the countryside, especially in northern Mesopotamia. So this book was an excellent comparison for me. And it helped me think about, again, that urban-rural binary. I've been challenging that binary in my one of my recent articles and in other um, recent work. And this book has been going to all, all kinds of footnotes because it's a perfect um, conversation partner. And broadly, I think, Anna, this will be a wonderful piece to read in the classroom. It's very approachable, but it's also very dense that doesn't leave you hungry for more. It really does a wonderful job of balancing theory and hardcore data. And that is one of the dream readings of any, I think, classroom, be it history, religious studies, or other relevant fields. I'm, for example, teaching a course on material Christianities, the first millennium in the spring term. And I look forward to teaching that course partly through, through this book. I think it will be very useful. So yeah, I, and these are only the ones that immediately come to my mind, but this has been a really delightful read and conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rehan. I would like to ask now our two authors, if the book is going to be translated in Turkish, for instance, since uh, Antakya is a Turkish city. And also, I would like to ask you both if you feel that we should say something before we close our podcast about this book, your experience, how you see envision any future research. I would love for this book to be translated to Turkish. I think that's really what has to be done for, yes, not only a Turkish city, but I think that just understanding its history and understanding these approaches and these methodologies in general for kind of Turkish audiences and scholarship, as well as being able to have Antakya kind of people of Antioch able to read about this city as well, and for it to be maybe available in the gift shop of the Hatay Müzesi or something would be really wonderful. And I'm sort of pausing like, whoa, this is going to be a big job, but an important one, an absolutely important one. So any future plans, uh, Andrea? I mean, are you, the two of you, are you continuing your work on Antioch? 
Well, well, Antioch is sort of like, as much as we try to sort of to place Antioch on the back burner, it always is sort of like, you know, comes and gets you. And as a matter of fact, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're now sort of poised to begin sort of this, this project on Daphne, sort of very much using sort of like, you know, this platform of the uh, Antioch collections at the, uh, the Princeton Museum of Art. So that's, that's our next goal. And, uh, uh, but certainly, we're going to draw upon the sort of like you know this this incredible heap of, of work that we've done for for this book. So it's gonna uh, make our life easy. But we're very much sort of eager on tackling this new story. In that it is Daphne. It is a place that no matter how close to Antioch, however, sort of follows a very very sort of peculiar route and. More often than not, that's the place where everything happens, where even sort of the fortunes and the uh, and sort of like you know the destiny of Antioch is sort of like you know were decided by the powers that were. So, so yes, that's going to be exciting. All the more as Harbia, the modern sort of neighborhood that has grown over the ancient, the ancient Daphne, has grown to the extent that, that that there's nothing visible. So we're trying to sort of like you know again. To produce a sense of sort of visibility. This is Daphne, and this is how it functioned, and this is how it was experienced, inhabited, and sort of like and built by its its constituents. I would also add, responding to your question about how how we maybe view the book in the future. I think we both very much agree that, and this is really in the first two sentences of the entire book, that what we really wanted to do there was so much going on with Antioch and scholarship that we just really wanted to sort of pause and say, okay, let's take a breath. Let's pull all of this together, see what what we can say about it. And it's no final remark about Antioch by any means. In fact, it's just a redirection. And what I would love is, okay, now all the scholars that work on Antioch or adjacent to Antioch, Rehan, you included, let's take it from there and then continue your scholarship. Happy to revise this book time and time and time again and know that it's, it's a city that's not only constantly evolving, but its scholarship is constantly evolving. So this is definitely not a, a final word, but we had to kind of take a breath and just bring it all in for everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as someone who has not visited the city yet, I have to say that it gives me a huge desire to buy a ticket and go there tomorrow. So I would like to thank uh, the three of you for a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much for, for this podcast. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumberton Oaks, by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.